We are to trust God and we are to work hard. But could you explain to somebody why those things go together? You might know those things go together, but why do they go together? And how do they go together? How should a trust in God motivate hard work? Well, those are the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes is going to answer for us today. So please open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter seven, or chapter 11, where we will look at verses 1 through 6 today. And we're starting now the last two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord willing, the last three sermons of um, the book. And so it'll be summing up a lot of things here as we wrap up, Lord willing, this month. And as you're turning there, anybody want to know what we're going to do after Ecclesiastes? Um, we are going to spend the summer looking at some various psalms in the scriptures. I know some people have asked, hey, when we finish Ecclesiastes, can we do Ecclesiastes again? Um, no, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to spend the summer looking at some psalms, and then when the school year resumes again in the fall, we'll be jumping in back into the New Testament to an epistle to be determined at a later date. So you can pray um, for that. And please, just bring the suggestions. Why don't you? Um, but as we sum up today, begin to sum up the book of Ecclesiastes, today it's really going to sum up the concept of work, specifically. Uh, that's something that has come up frequently throughout the book, and now it's really going to be a call to action as it sums up a lot of thoughts on that subject. So let's look at these first six verses together. It says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, if they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good." So hopefully, even as we read that, you sense that it's a call to action because in verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, it's imperatives. It's telling us what to do. Uh, it's giving us commands. And we'll dig more into those, but they are a call to action. Hey, go, work, work hard. And don't be afraid even of risk in that work. But the middle verses, verses 3 through 5, really get into the reason. Why should you obey these commands? Why should you do these things? So we want to start with that and unpack that and then get into the, the so what, the commands that it gives. So looking at verse 3, it talks about the clouds being full of rain and emptying themselves on the earth. It talks about the tree falling to the south or to the north, and in the place where it falls, there it will lie. It's coming back to some pretty familiar themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. In this life under the sun, there are a lot of things you cannot control. Exhibit A, the weather. You can't control it. I mean, just this week, our church, right? We had to move that women's, that Mother's Day brunch to a new location because of the weather. 
And if we could control it, we would have scheduled Wednesday's weather when it was perfect and nice for Saturday. But we can't do that, right? You look at the the clouds, you can't tell them to rain or or not rain. They're going to do what they are going to do, and you have no control over it. Also, there's a lot that is unpredictable. Again, exhibit A, the weather, right? It's going to snow tomorrow. Well, we'll see, right? We don't always know what's going to happen, but it gives this, the tree falls. You don't know if it's going to fall to the north. You don't know if it's going to fall to the south. And then when it falls, if it's a big tree, especially back in those days, you might not have the equipment to do anything about it. So where it falls, there it's going to lie. Life is, uh, there's things you can't control. There's things you cannot predict. And if you, if that's all you think about, that can actually keep you from making decisions. You won't do anything if you're just focused on those things. That's where it gets to in verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. All right. If all you're doing is looking at the wind, oh, is today the right day to sow? Ah, it's a little, a little breezy. Yeah, maybe I'll wait till tomorrow. Is today the right way to the right day to reap? Is it going to rain? I don't know, right? And if you overthink about those things, you'll never do anything. The classic case of paralysis by over-analysis, right? I'm just thinking about everything. I'm waiting for everything to be perfect. And guess what? Nothing's ever perfect, right? And so if you're waiting for perfection, it's never going to happen. Even this week, I saw people uh, discussing in our church, well, when's the right time to plant these vegetables in, in my garden, right? What's the weather looking like? And those are fair questions to ask. But if, you, if that's all you do, you can take that to an extreme where you never do anything because you're, you're, you're focused on all the things you can't control, you can't predict, and that kind of paralyzes you from going out and doing anything. So where do you go? You go to verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Now that's an interesting phrase. And I found it very interesting that on this week of all weeks, we just so happen to be coming across this verse in the Bible. Obviously, just today being Mother's Day and thinking through the, the process of becoming a mom and that baby growing inside of you. But also, because this week, what's going on with the bones in the womb of a woman with child has been like the top issue in the headlines of our nation. And if I could just maybe take a moment to preach a sermon within a sermon, as long as the Bible's kind of bringing up this topic of the baby inside the mother's womb to us, hopefully, as Christians, we can all think clearly about what's really going on in our culture. Because our culture wants to talk about things like pro-life, pro-choice, abortion, Roe versus Wade, when really, if you boil a lot of this down to its essence, what we're talking about is murder. What we're talking about is ending with deliberation and intention, ending a human life. And not just any human life, a helpless human life, a life that deserves protection in the womb of its mother. And hopefully we can think clearly about that as Christians. And it's a great time for us to pray for our nation. We saw in Ecclesiastes earlier, one of the grievous things under the sun is when I looked in the place of justice and there was wickedness. Well, let's pray that in the place of justice, there would be, I don't know, justice, right? And they would decide what is right and what is good. And there's even more that we should think about as, as Christians that, you know, even the issue of abortion, people want to make it about things like equality or things like that, where that's not really what it's about. Abortion is inherently linked to sex. 
It's just the way it is. Like, you can't have an abortion without the other thing, right? Like, that's just the way it works. And really, it's not about equality and all these other things. It's really connected to immorality is really what it is. Our culture has made an idol out of sexual immorality. You might look out and just so it's a secular, godless culture. No, they're worshiping something. And for many of them, they're bowing down to the idol of sexual immorality. And abortion has really become the, as others have said, the sacrament of this religion. Because it allows them to go out and do whatever they want to do, right? It's really, most of the time, murder to cover up sexual immorality. That's what we're talking about. And that should start to ring bells. That's not anything new. That's as old as the Bible, right? If there had been an abortion clinic down the street from King David's palace, Uriah might have lived to fight another day, right? Because that would have been much easier to do is to cover up the life of this child and to end that life than to end the life of Uriah. And so that should also help us think as Christians, hey, I want to pray for my nation. I want to pray for what is right and what is just. But also I hope this helps you think, and I want to check my own heart because I know what immorality really ends up leading to. And so as you're tempted by impurity this week, may you see past the the culture and how it wants to make it look so appealing and enticing and fun. And you say, no, that is the way of pain and death, often literally is where it ends. And let that unmask it for you, even as you fight against temptation in your own life. Because what is it if we want to say, hey, yes, I'm, I'm for life, but then I'm dabbling with sexual immorality myself. What is that called? It's hypocrisy. And there's no space for that. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If we want revival in this nation, it's ultimately going to start with the church seeking the Lord. And even on that subject, or even as we think about that verse, if that brings guilt or shame to some of you here, and you reflect, and maybe you had an abortion in the past, or maybe as a man, you put somebody in that position, right? That's where the good news of Jesus Christ comes in. And and David, who was guilty of murder to cover up sexual immorality, what did he say? He said, God, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Psalm 51, a psalm he wrote after that sin. For all of this, there's only one place to find grace, forgiveness, and hope. And it's in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And if you're dealing with guilt and shame this morning, I hope you can look at that and say, hey, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And remember, we're the only ones that are gonna bring that message to this godless world. And so let's be emboldened to share the good news of Jesus Christ because it's the only message that brings hope to this culture. Okay, that's the end of the sermon within the sermon. Let's look back here at chapter, at verse five. It talks about this mystery of the the spirit and the bones of the womb of the woman with child. But look at what the point is here. Why is he bringing up? He's saying, you don't know. You don't know. And there's a textual issue here. You might notice the the footnote. Is it saying you don't know the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb? Maybe you have different translations. That's how it translates it. Or is it you don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones? Well, the reason why that's tricky is because both in Hebrew and in Greek, the words for spirit and wind are the same. It's the same word uh, for both uh, of those things. And so sometimes it's tricky. Is it spirit? Is it, is it wind? And so that's why it's the issue. I think the ESV gets it right here, even if you think about John 3, and it's those same 
interactions there. But again, the point is you don't know. You don't know how this happens. And even today, right, we've got ultrasounds. There's a lot more that we know. You can Google, you know, what fruit is my baby right now? You know, at week, you know, 17 of pregnancy, oh, your baby's the size of this fruit. Well, we know more of these things, but there's still mystery to it. We still don't know everything. Theologians still debate, well, how does the soul get in there? You know, how does that work, right? Those things are still discussed, but imagine back 3,000 years ago, man, how much of a mystery it was. It was a complete mystery. You don't know how this life is being formed in there. And it's saying, just like you don't know that, verse five, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. And so to sum it all up, verse three, there's things you can't control. There's things you can't predict. Verse four, you can't let those things paralyze you because just like you don't know how all this works, you don't know, you know, the work of God who makes everything. You don't know what God is going to do. And so that, again, kind of ties a bow to a lot of these threads that have been woven through the book of Ecclesiastes. There's uncertainty in this world. You can't control it. However, you know a God who does. Just flip back a few pages to chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then it goes on into this, you know, famous list, a time to be born, a time to die. And again, the emphasis is, can you control the seasons? No, you can't. All these things are happening and you cannot control them. So then it gets to, so what? Verse nine, what gain has the worker from his toil? If I can't control all these things, why would I go out and work? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, but then Well, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. If all it was, was I can't control things, I can't predict things, then why should I work would be a good question. But when we say, well, with all of that, I know God is working it all into something beautiful, that gives me motivation. But it starts with that trust in God. And there's a word that theologians use to talk about this attribute of God where he is controlling things and working things for good. And that term is providence. Let's put that down for point number one, trust in the providence of God. Trust in the providence of God. And it really combines a lot of things that should really be encouraging to us. Truths like God is good, that he wants what is best for his people. Uh, Truths like God is, is wise. He knows everything. He's omniscient. Uh, truths like he's, he's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He, our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115. He does whatever he pleases. Now, if you are a Christian, the combination of those things should be very powerful in your life because you know, okay, God is good. He wants what's best for me. Uh, God is wise. He knows what's best for me. And God is Sovereign, he has the power to do whatever is best for me. And when we, put our, when we surround ourselves with those truths, that's a great place to be. I call those three things the, the triangle of trust, right? God is good, God is wise, and God is sovereign. And when I surround myself with those truths, I don't need to worry or be afraid about anything 
because I'm trusting in the providence of God. And summing up all of those truths, providence is a good way to do it. It's defined sometimes as the protective care of God, right? That I know God is good. He's protecting me. He's caring for me. And he's God. He's sovereign. That's a comforting thing. And he's the God who makes everything. He's the creator God. And of all we've seen in Ecclesiastes, we know there's so much I don't understand. But I know the God who understands and controls everything. And that starts to factor into work. Because one thing, if you've noticed about work, work requires you to make decisions. Well, guess what? The providence of God will help you make decisions. I mean, that's one of the most common things that come up in pastoral counseling. People come to a pastor and say, hey, hey, pastor, I, I need help making this decision in my life. And usually it's not, do I plant my garden now or wait two weeks? Because if you want to ask me that question, you're asking the wrong guy, okay? You know, find, find someone else for that question that knows what they're talking about. But as Christians, it's like, well, I've got some life decision that I'm at the crossroads of, and I need to make that decision. And not only... Can those things be hard because it's, well, I don't know everything. I can't control everything. I can't predict everything. But we even add this element to it as Christians. And usually people come to me and the way they phrase it is, Pastor, how do I know what the will of God is? I've got these two options in front of me. Pastor, can you help me figure out what the will of God is? Now, Thankfully, we have God's word. God has revealed to us what his will is, and it makes a lot of things pretty black and white. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, pastor, I'm really got a, I really got a choice to make with, with my career. I'm thinking about starting this, uh, this like home inspection business or dealing drugs. Can you help me discover what the will of God is, pastor? Okay, easy decision, right? One of those is immoral, illegal, and just destructive. No, that is not the will of God for you. But if it's, ah, you know, I've got this idea maybe to start this business, or I've kind of got this other job opportunity that I could just take. Well, pastor, what's the will of God? And in situations like that, I want to help you see that that's actually a fundamentally flawed question. It assumes there's one right answer. And when we turn big life decisions into this game of, all right, which hand has the will of God in it, right? Is it this, this entrepreneurial opportunity over here or this job over here? Which is it going to, oh, you, you've been praying, fasting, you think it's this? Sorry, nothing in there. You, you lose, right? You didn't get the will of God right. Try again next time, right? What a horrible way to make decisions, And now you know why a lot of people get paralyzed by decisions because we've made it, oh, God has this secret will in one of these things when there might not be one right answer. According to verse two, there might be seven or eight right answers to that question. And that's where I think a lot of the fear comes back to, well, what if I choose wrong? What if I choose one of those things and it turns out it doesn't go as well as I thought? It doesn't go like I planned it would? And even it's, it's, it's really hard. Well, guess what you're going to experience then? The providence of God. That's what you're going to experience. You can make a decision that, that you know, hey, I, I, I'm doing what I'm doing, hopefully from a heart to honor God. And I know what I'm doing isn't, isn't sinful and I'm going to try to do it too honor the Lord, there's a freedom now you have in making those kind of decisions. It doesn't mean you should be hasty or foolish 
in decision-making, and I'll let you guys kick that question around in your small groups this week of, you know, hey, where are those lines of being, you know, too overly cautious versus being too rash or, or hasty, but we should be able to make decisions without fear, knowing, hey, God's got me, and God is making everything beautiful in its time, even when I make a decision that at a human level might appear to blow up in my face, right? I can trust God, and that leads to the ability to make decisions, and that should lead to harder work because there's a freedom in that. Let's say that after the service today, we're going to go out and we're going to set up one of those like slack, rock, slack lines or tight ropes, and I'll take turns going across it. And let's say we're going to set it up, you know, 20 feet high over the Boise River. You in? I'm not in. I'm not doing it. I'll get my phone out and take video of those of you that are going to try, right? But the consequences of failure are, are pretty, pretty great in that case. Well, what if instead we set up the slack line over one of those foam pits, right? You in now? Well, still, you'll probably be careful walking across there, and, and there's probably... St- Trust me, there's ways we could all figure out still how to injure ourselves in that situation. But it takes a lot of the, the fear out of it because, hey, if, I, if, I, if it doesn't go like I planned, if I don't quite make it across, I'm landing on something soft. Well, guys, there is nothing softer to land on in this life than the providence of God. And when we make decisions the best we can, seeking to be faithful, seeking to honor God, we can trust, hey, even if it doesn't go according to plan, God is making everything beautiful in its time. Or as it says in Romans, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so hopefully now you're starting to see the connection. This is how it motivates hard work. This is how it leads us to work hard. And that leads us to those three imperative verses in our passage, starting with verse one, cast your bread upon the waters. What in the world is that talking about, right? Cast your bread upon the waters? So what we're gonna do, everybody go home today and go get all your bread, all you sourdough bakers out there. Go get all of your bread and let's meet at you know uh, Eagle Road and the river and we're just gonna cast all of our bread upon the waters because for you will find it after many days because next Sunday you'll go to like Star Road and the river and there your bread will be, right? Is that what this, what, what does this mean? Like th- this seems so out there. Well, there's two possibilities. One, and even if you have the NIV, it translates it this way, ship your grain across the sea. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about commerce. Hey, this grain, this bread that you've got, you've got to ship it out. If you want to return from it, right, you, you'll get something back in many days, but you've got to take that risk of sending it out. The other option is, this is some way to refer to charitable giving or, or giving alms. I think that first option is better, really because of the topic of this passage. This passage seems to be about work, industry, economics. Even going back to chapter 10, verse 18, it's talking about sloth leading to the roof sinking in, indolence, the house is leaking, and then people that think that bread and wine and money is what life is all about. And he's saying now, no, that's laziness. You're going to have to risk some of that bread to to make a profit. And even verse 6, again, it really seems like it's focusing on work. But I will show you later, even though both those interpretations can't be right, I do think hard work and generosity biblically are very closely connected. And we'll see that later. But I think the idea is, hey, you got to send out your bread on the ships. 
if you want to get a financial return from that. You, you can't eat it all yourself. It, you know, if you want that to provide for you, you're going to have to send it out in the ships. And that means part of work is risk. You, especially in those days, you put something on a ship, you might never see it again. Uh, that ship might go down. And so it was a risky process. It was also a slow process. You will find it after many days. You think the supply chain is slow right now? Rewind the clock 3,000 years, right? Think about how long it took to get supplies back then. So you're taking a risk and you don't know. It might be a long time till you get a return from that. So there are wise ways to mitigate that risk. Give a portion to seven or even eight. You know, don't put all your grain on one ship. Maybe spread it out across several ships. Diversify your investments. Why? Well, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Ain't that the truth? You don't know what bad thing is going to happen in the year 2022, just like you didn't know what kind of bad thing was going to happen in the year 2020. You don't know when some natural disaster will strike, some economic disaster, political disaster, international disaster. Again, if you're reading Ecclesiastes and you're reading the newspaper, you should know, I have no idea what's going to happen next, right? Life is unpredictable, so there's this wisdom in, in being prepared and even part of being prepared. Hey, try several things. Don't put all your eggs in one basket it is the theme of what he is saying here. But again, the thrust of this all, again, getting to verse six, it's, hey, get after it. Do something. Take a risk. Try something. Try several things and trust that God will work it all out. So go get busy with whatever God has put in front of you. Let's put it down this way for point Number two, dig into your work. Dig into your work. And again, like we've done in the past with Ecclesiastes, think of the term work broadly. Don't just think of your nine to five job. And some of you might not even have that, but think of your employment, think of your home, especially if you're, you're parenting, that's part of your work. But even, hey, taking care of your house, taking care of your yard, the other things that come up. If you're a student, whatever place God has put you in, what, what are the responsibilities in your life and whatever they are, put your back into it. Dig into your work. But again, the word dig, I'm choosing because there's three other words I want you to think about as we think about what this should look like. And those are diligent, industrious, and generous. That's the kind of workers God wants us to be diligent, industrious, and generous. Let's think about that first word, diligent. Verse six gives that idea, hey, in the morning, work, sow your seed. And in the evening, hey, work at something else. And I mean, just think about it. How many of you, that's actually your daily life because you wake up in the morning and, and you got to go to work. But then you get off work and it's evening. Well, now there's a different kind of work that needs to be done. Work at home or work in some other area. And the word diligent describes a worker that's characterized by steady, earnest, and energetic effort. That's the kind of worker God wants us to be. And that's something we see not just in Ecclesiastes, but also in that wisdom book that comes right before Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Proverbs. And you're probably familiar with these words from Proverbs chapter six, which say, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ants, they, they work diligently. But then the opposite of that, how long will you lie there, O oh, sluggard, right? That's a 
great word, sluggard. Because I mean, just think when you see that slug going across your, you know, your walkway at your house, is that thing in a hurry to get anywhere, right? And I mean, it looks like it sounds like slug, right? Well, that's what it's saying. That's what the lazy person is like. They're a, a sluggard. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Or Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. I mean, we all want things in this room, but the lazy person, they want things and they don't get them because they don't work for them. And if we were to study all of Proverbs, part of it is because they don't take any risks for that. They're afraid, right? They make excuses. There's a lion in the streets. That's why I'm late for work, right? It's excuses. It's fear. That's why the lazy person is in the moment. Staying in bed always seems like the safer option. We know in reality it's not. It leads to poverty. But in the moment, that's what seems safe. The soul of the sluggard craves and get nothing. while the soul of the diligent, it says, is richly Supplied. God wants us to be diligent. So again, I want to encourage you, think about all the different areas of responsibility in your life and ask the question, am I being diligent? Am I being the kind of hard worker that God is teaching me to be? Because I'm trusting him. I have that freedom to work hard, take risks, do what God has called me to do. The other word I want you to think about is being industrious, which is kind of like being diligent, but I think has the added sense of not wasting time, making the most of, of what you have. That's what I think of when I think of someone that's industrious, they look at all the things that they have and, hey, what's the best possible solution I can come up with? And that usually takes work. But with that work and a little bit of ingenuity, it, it, it turns into something good. And a lot of that, I think, is tied to Ecclesiastes, where one of the main themes that we have seen is that of contentment. Be content with what you have and work hard to make the most of what you have. The lazy person says, oh, I wish I had a nicer car. I wish I had a bigger house, but then doesn't do any work to accomplish that. The industrious person says, hey, how can I make the most of the car that I have? Instead of just sitting and daydreaming about a nicer one, how can I make the most of the house that I have instead of daydreaming about a bigger one? And that's going to lead to making the most of it. And that kind of hard work will actually probably be more likely to lead to success and provision in other things. Be diligent, be industrious, and be generous. Now, again, I don't think that's the point of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, but if we put all of Ecclesiastes together and we did a deep dive study of work ethic in Proverbs, you would see these things are linked. That our world thinks that a working hard is about getting more for myself, right? And no, that's not what we've been learning. And if you think, all right, I, I like this. I came to church today and I like this message because I like hard work because I'm going to go out there and I'm going to work, work, work because then I'll be rich, rich, rich and then I will be happy. If that's what you think, congratulations. You've entirely missed the point of the book of Ecclesiastes all of these months. That, that's the opposite of what he is saying because in chapter two, Solomon said, hey, nobody worked harder than I did and nobody accomplished more cool stuff than I did. But guys, that ain't it. That's not everything. It's mist. It's vanity. It's 
chasing after the wind is the conclusion that he came to. But if on the other hand, the conclusion you're coming to is, well then, I'm just going to stop working. Well, you, you've also missed the point of Ecclesiastes because it's saying, hey, this trust in a, a sovereign God should lead you to work. And a biblical work ethic, again, if we could just look at work all across the Bible, would show you a, a biblical work ethic is inherently focused on others. There's some focus on yourself where even in the epistles, hey, you know, you should be able to provide for yourself if you are able-bodied, right? If you have the strength to, you should provide for yourself. You shouldn't be mooching off others, but also you should be providing for others because if a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever, the Bible says. But also even what should drive a lot of our work even is, hey, I'm doing something good that benefits others, right? I'm excited about my job or my business because we are providing a good or a service that benefits other people. And that is a good and godly motive. But maybe one verse, just to show you this link between hard work and generosity, just turn back a few pages again, if you're in Ecclesiastes, to Proverbs 21. Might even be helpful to see this with your own eyes. Proverbs 21, 25, and 26. It says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long, he craves and craves, but the righteous, and that's where you expect this verse to end with something like, but the righteous is diligent and industrious, but that's not where it goes. It does in other places, but here it says, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. In the Bible, in God's mind, show me a hard worker and he'll show you a generous person right? And vice versa. That's the way God thinks about hard work and generosity. They are linked. And that's the way that we should think too. And again, see how that connection is fueled by the providence of God. I work hard and I'm generous because I'm not just, I need all this stuff for myself or I'm worried about the future. So I need everything for me. It's I'm trusting the providence of God. So whatever I've got, I'm happy to share with somebody else. Mi casa es su casa, right? Well, whatever it is that I have, I'm, be, I'm willing to share that with someone else because I'm trusting the providence of God and it's not all about me. So as I work hard to provide for my family or as I save up to prepare for an uncertain future, even in all that, I've got other people in mind and I'm ready to share with whoever else may be in need. So we trust God and we work hard. Now, if you look at your note sheet, you'll notice verse one, there's, you know, hey, verses three through five, verse point two, there's uh, verses one and two and verse six. Point three, there, there's nothing there. What's up with that? Well, that's because I want to step back now and think about the things we've seen in this passage in light, really, of the whole book of Ecclesiastes and all of the Bible. Because one thing Ecclesiastes has reminded us of so bluntly is, hey, it's not about being rich because you're going to die and you'll lose everything that you have. And the things that you thought were so important now, well, nobody's going to remember that and nobody's going to remember you. It's not all about this life. Should be another lesson we've got from Ecclesiastes. We've referred to this quote before from a missionary named C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so even as we think about working hard, well, what are we working for? 
And that's where I don't want to draw a false dichotomy here between, well, hey, what you do for for church or for ministry and then everything else you do in life. Because what you do for church and ministry, that's important, but you like your job or whatever. No one cares about that. No, that's not not true. If, If anything, you should be saying, no, whatever I do in my job and whatever I do at my home is for Christ. Because if it's not, then it is a waste. But no, work for the Lord at your job. Work for the Lord at home. These are important things. But I want to step back and to take some time to deliberately consider, uh, okay, let's think about the work we do in ministry or the work we do to evangelize and, and share the gospel and apply these principles to that. When it comes to the work you do for the Lord, are you diligent? Are you industrious? Are you generous in those things? Point number three, work for what will last forever. Let's, let's take a step back and view all these principles through the lens of eternity. Because again, this does not exclude your home or your workplace. We should be working for things that will last even in those ways. But there are ways that God is specifically calling us, right? If you are a part of the church, you are a member of the body, God is calling you, hey, use your gift to, to serve the body so that everyone may benefit. We all have the responsibility. Hey, I've been entrusted with the gospel. I know the good news of Jesus Christ. God wants me to share it with others. And just to say, hey, are we applying those same biblical work ethic principles to those areas of our life as well? Look with me at one parable of Jesus, Matthew 25. We'll see some things that kind of connect with what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes. Matthew 25, and we just read this recently in our journey through the Bible. Matthew 24 gets us thinking about prophecy, uh, eschatology, and I hope everyone here understands, hey, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. You should be on the edge of your seat. Well, what does that look like? Because it doesn't literally mean, hey, scoot up, get on the edge of your seat right now. What does that practically look like? And Jesus gives us some parables to tell us, hey, this is what it should look like. And one of them is in chapter 25, starting in verse 14. It's the parable of the talents. And this word talent does not mean what you think of and I think of when we hear the word talent. That was a, you know, a unit of, a monetary unit back in these times. It was an amount of money. And it says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And Jesus, even having this conversation with his disciples, hey guys, I'm entrusting things to you, but I, the king, am going away. And they're gonna be entrusted to you and then through you to the church and to believers. And verse 16, he who had received the five talents went out at once and traded with them. He cast his bread across on the waters. And he went out and he worked hard and he took risks. And guess what? He made five talents more. And so also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He did nothing. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also he who had 
the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Slothful, another great word with another animal that gives a very good picture of what it's describing. You knew that I did not reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Notice question mark there. He's not agreeing with him. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the end, that character in the parable, I don't think represents a a genuine believer because no genuine believer is going to end up in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But notice some of the connections with the providence of God. This wicked, slothful servant, he didn't think his master was good. And notice the master doesn't agree with him. And even the master has already shown that he is not some greedy guy. He's a generous master. He tells the faithful ones, hey, you've been faithful over a little. I'm going to give you a lot. Enter into the joy of your master, right? He's a joyful, generous master is who he actually is. But the servant that doesn't get that, the servant that doesn't trust that, he's the servant that does nothing. But we see even in this parable where I think the context is, hey, they've been entrusted with the talents. They're, they're, they're to serve the cause of the king. The ones that took risks, work, worked hard for that purpose are the ones that end up being rewarded. So are you being that kind of worker for the sake of the gospel? Are you being diligent to serve the Lord? Are you serving God with earnestness and, and eagerness and, and constancy? And that's where as I look out at this church, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for a church that is full of faithful, diligent servants. I mean, have you looked around and reminded yourself where we are this morning in a middle school gym that a couple hours before we did church yesterday was just an empty middle school gym and uh, an hour from now will be an empty middle school gym again. And a bunch of classrooms all around the building where desks were moved that'll be put back in meticulous fashion so they're exactly where they were left. And teachers to fill all those classrooms to teach our children, right? And an Awana program on Thursday night that just keeps exploding, exploding, exploding. And more people that want to give a night of their week to come teach kids the word of God. And so many other ways that people are generously and diligently serving this church. Thank you to those of you that are serving so faithfully. Remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And if you're here and you haven't been able to jump in and serve yet, hey, better late to the party than never. Jump in and serve. And you will find you will be rewarded, not just in eternity, but even right now, you will see, man, that's one of the most joyful things you could do is to serve the church. Are you diligent? Are you industrious? Are you making the most of what God has given you for his name's sake? 
And that's where you, even there's that idea of kind of ingenuity and creativity. Like, hey, how can we do some of these things better that we need to do? And, and to be clear, one thing we never, ever, 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 ever want to get creative with is the message of the gospel. It is what it is. But we don't want to get creative with what God's word says. Whenever you try to, to say, oh, well, if we kind of uh, make it say this, that'll be cool. No, everybody loses in that. But where we do want to get creative is, okay, we've been entrusted with this message of the gospel. How do we get it out to more people? You know, these are the kinds of things that not just the the pastors, not just the, the deacons or the staff and the leaders of the church should be asking. These are the questions that every Christian should be asking. Because some of the best and most fruitful ideas that this church will come up with won't be from a pastor, won't be from a staff member. It'll be from some of you saying, you know what? I've been thinking about this opportunity at my workplace or this opportunity in my neighborhood. And so I'm gonna start this evangelistic Bible study or I'm gonna get a few uh, people I know and go out and and do this and seek to uh, meet people and win people over with the message of the gospel. You are all deputized because there is so much work to be done in this valley. We all should be saying, hey, even as you'll you'll look at the verse from Colossians 4, we gotta make the most of the time. We, we all want to think that way. And we, we need to be generous. I mean, lots of times serving the Lord costs time, money, energy. And sometimes we, we, we keep back from doing that because we say, hey, I've got to take care of myself. And that's where, yeah, you, you've got a job, you've got a family. There are things you have to take care of. But I think for a lot of us, if we trusted the providence of God a little more and said, okay, if I, if I do a little more of this, that might feel like it costs me, but... I'm going to trust that God is going to work it out. You're going to be amazed at all the ways that God provides. And also, just you think of being generous, don't just think of serving and how that might cost you time, money, and energy. Just look again at verse 6 in Ecclesiastes. In the morning, sow your seed. If you've read the Gospels, you're familiar with the parables of Jesus. That should ring a bell. The parable of the sower. Well, what did that represent? spreading the gospel and the parables ultimately about how people responded to it, right? But be generous with the gospel. Anytime you share the gospel with somebody else, you are doing a service to them. They might not realize that, but that's what it is. Be generous. Sow your seed. Get the gospel out there. You don't know who might respond. And if you think, well, trust in God, hard work, how do those go together? If that blows your mind, we'll dig into God is sovereign and we are responsible, right? Right? So many theological debates really come back to those two truths, right? And we affirm, yes, God is sovereign. And it's a shame that some who affirm that do end up downplaying even our responsibility to evangelize. Well, yeah, God's sovereign. God knows who's going to get saved. God's deciding who's going to get saved. So, you know, what can I do, right? Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says. And may it never be with us. Well, we should, yeah, God is sovereign, but he has called us to share the gospel. Uh, Romans chapter nine, so much about God's sovereignty and salvation. Romans chapter 10, how are they gonna hear if nobody tells them the gospel? Get out there, right? That should motivate us to evangelism. Be generous in sharing the gospel. These things go together. Trusting God, hard work, these ideas are not enemies. They are not opposed to each other. They're actually the very best of friends and they go together. And I hope this passage in Ecclesiastes has helped all of us see that a little bit better. And I hope that affects the way we think this week, the the way we work this week, the way we serve 
this week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us grace to trust your providence even more. God, there is so much uncertainty in this world and sometimes that can make us afraid, God. But we wanna trust that you are who you say you are. So give us grace to trust you more, God, and let that fuel diligent, industrious, and generous work in our lives. And God, this is not the first time that that work has come up, God, but it will be the last time that we really focus mostly on this idea. And I pray that all of us, Lord, our work will look differently this week because of what you have taught us through the book of Ecclesiastes. And and God, may we also be faithful in the ways that we work for your namesake, uh, even more specifically. God, we wanna work for your name in everything that we do. God, even specifically, the things we do to serve the church, to spread the gospel, God, to help us to be these kind of workers in those things as well. God, and even as we discussed this morning, Lord, we do want to pray for our nation. Lord, we want to pray for the leaders of our nation. God, we want to pray, uh, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may you show your mercy to our country, even just through right laws being enacted and right decisions being given. God, and may we be faithful to to pray and to do what we can uh, do to, uh, God, support what is good and, and right in this world. But Lord, we do pray for revival in our nation. God, we realize that one of the big problems that even underlies all of this is the problem of idolatry, Lord. And that's a problem we have all dealt with in our own lives, God. May we find the solution. May we find grace in you and give us boldness to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And may we see you bring revival in our land. God, as you work in the hearts of your people, Lord, as all your people seek your face. God, may that be true of us. God bless us this day in your name and for your namesake. Amen.